0: Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Program, New Perspectives in Clinical Trial Research. Um, Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and because of both uh, your um, all of your interest in the program and um, the collaboration with all the other organizations. We have on the call today over 254 participants. You come from all of the United States, from rural, suburban, urban, and frontier communities. And we have some international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. This is a very important topic. It's Clinical trials are the way that we um, really um, extend and, and develop new ways of treating cancer. They really, um, when I think about them over the years, they've made such a difference in the care and treatment that people receive. And you'll be hearing much more about that from our speakers. Uh, Today's program is supported by Bristol myers Squid and Pharmacyclics, LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support. And we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, and author, researcher, in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to present an overview of clinical trials, why they are important, new perspectives in clinical trial research, the meaning of informed consent, and specific questions to ask your healthcare team about clinical trials. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman.
2: Hi, Dr. Messner, and hello, everybody who's tuned in to the uh, Cancer Care Connect teleconference. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for spending time with us. This is a very important topic. Because this, um, this te- a teleconference will be um, also podcasted, I think it's just important to mention that uh, today, which is March of 2020, The world is in the midst of the um, spread of the coronavirus or COVID-19 virus, as it's called in some places. And it's uh, just an important uh, time to mention that if you're on a trial or if you're on treatment, to be in touch with your treatment care team in whatever way they have set up for you to communicate. Um, For some people, that may be telephone. For other people, that may be Email or a patient portal, if the um, facility is that you're, where you're getting treated as part of a larger facility that has an electronic health record with a, a confidential and private portal. But I, I believe each of you um, can know or can find out how is best to reach your treatment team. We know that across the country, um, cancer centers have been working on alternative means. <clears throat> to be able to contact everybody when in-person visits isn't always possible or advisable. So um, please find out how you can reach your team by calling or emailing them. We hear that sometimes telephone contact is a little bit harder. A lot of the lines are jammed with many people calling, but email or, um, in some places, text or patient portal communications uh, would be the way to verify you know who to who to speak with or who to contact and how to contact them for any questions that you may have. Um, this is a sort of a changing environment for us, but I think that's the best general advice um, we can give as of today. And as we're all learning this changes almost on a day by day basis. So let's just uh, get back to our job at hand, which is to discuss clinical trials. Um, clinical trials are are probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in uh, oncology especially, but in all branches of um, medicine, nursing, as well as the uh, uh, health sciences, psychological sciences, and and even sociology. Um, Many people's first reaction, and I'm not sure where this comes from, probably from uh, movies or old books, usually older movies or older books, is a reaction like, I'm not going to be a guinea pig. Um, It's common to hear that all the time, but these days, that's just not so. And I'd like to provide some information about clinical trials, and you'll have the opportunity to ask us all questions if what we say just doesn't make sense or doesn't fit with your own experience. So what are clinical trials? Some people say that clinical trials are synonymous with an experiment, but it is not. Um, Clinical trials are a system of providing treatment, um, either testing a new treatment, which is the minority of clinical trials, but most often testing an approved, time-tested treatment. These are treatments where we know how well they work or or, uh, what the side effects are, And those treatments are being used in a different way either on a different schedule, a different amount of time between the treatments, a different dosage, or using a treatment that may have thought to be helpful in one type of cancer for another cancer, where there's data and experience that says that that treatment may be helpful in a second type of cancer. But most trials are not testing brand new drugs, and those are called phase one trials, and we'll get to that um, in, in a few minutes. But it's often just testing a a time-tested treatment on a new schedule or for a different situation. It's just a major misperception. When I trained um, in oncology in 1984, And I started hearing that expression about being a guinea pig. I really thought or hoped that it would sort of go by the wayside as people learned more information about this. But even today in 2020, people's reaction is exactly the same. So we all really need to be on point and full of proper information to be able to dispel that myth. Um, why, does this ha- why, why do we have clinical trials? Well, if a new drug is developed, either by um, uh, under uh, um, government funding or through funding by a pharmaceutical company or even an, a device, because when we speak about clinical trials, we're really not just speaking about medications, but about medical devices as well. When a new drug or device um, is um, invented, um, it we, we, there is a series of steps that people go through—a very long and sometimes very arduous series of steps—to test it to make sure it's both effective and safe. Many times, those medications or devices don't even have a name yet, or they have just a number so someone who has an idea uh or we'd like to say inventor but it's a little different than like the light bulb or the telephone type of an inventor um often will work with either a government agency or a pharmaceutical or a device company to um work to test the drug or the 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 device on animals um those are that's all laboratory testing. There are certain animals whose immune systems are very much like human immune systems, and these um, animals, uh, genetically altered mice, may be one type, and maybe in the olden days, guinea pigs were another type, but they're really not used today. Um, Lots of testing happens within laboratories on animals, specifically to test for safety and for how effective the um, treatment or the device, the, the, new, the drug or the device is. Um, if it shows promise, um, since it's so costly to, to, to do all of this uh, work, there is a, a real partnership between um, our government and the pharmaceutical and device companies to be able to fund the ones that have, show the most promise. Um, and then, um, lots of paperwork has to be submitted to the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA. And then the FDA has a whole process of starting from the beginning and moving that drug or device through the steps to test it for safety and effectiveness. Um, the, um, the in 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 the research areas, we all usually speak about three phases or three phases plus something called post marketing and there 's somewhat of um, of a confusion sometimes about what these mean. A phase one treatment looks at safety and side effects um, as well as a possible schedule of administration um, Phase one. drug drug trials are not done in most cancer centers around the country, they're done in very select cancer centers around the country, often in the larger research centers or the larger accredited programs which uh, who have a large interest in um, developing uh, new drugs or devices and often have separate areas, a separate infusion room, a radiation machine that's particularly uh, suited for this to, to test uh, the radiation approach or the device. Um, but there are specific teams. Everybody who works in phase one drugs is specifically, or devices, is specifically trained on all of the regulations and how to proceed to make sure that things are safe um, and that the, all the data is recorded in a proper way to learn something from that. Phase two type of uh, studies look at how effective a drug or device is. Once we know that it's safe, and we, um, we know that the safety margin is pretty much within the realm of what everybody um, can accept, uh, we then look at how effective it is. And then in the phase three um, part of the trial, we take that device or drug and pair it against the best known device or drug for that patient with that type of cancer, at that stage, with certain characteristics, um, and these are often done all over the country, um, all at once through networks of investigators, physician scientists, cancer centers, uh, who put the multidisciplinary team to work to make sure that the patient has all the information, gets all the proper care they get throughout the trial. Uh, there are um, government-sponsored um, clinical trials groups through the National Cancer Institute, and um, some of them are done directly from the pharmaceutical companies themselves. And I think the partnership between both has been um, pretty fruitful for a lot of uh, Newer um, treatments and devices that we actually have today. I don't personally. I don't believe we would not we would not be at this point unless there was a really good cooperation between the both. Um, Sometimes um, phase three studies are called double blind. Uh, it's a funny term um but it means that the investigator uh, the 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 whole research team and not just the the individual whose name is on the papers but the whole team who's giving a treatment may not is not aware of if they if the patient is receiving a um the the drug or the device to be tested or uh the best care possible sometimes it's obvious on those studies are not double-blinded, but it's called double-blind because the patient is also not aware of which one they're getting. Um, These are scrupulously reviewed by um, institutional review boards, and institutional review boards have to approve each of these studies. There's a whole system of institutional review boards through the United States. Some are centralized, some are hospital-by-hospital, um, many studies are reviewed both by a central institutional review board as well as a local one and local institutional review boards almost always have a community member so it's not just people who are in, the, in, in cancer treatment but somebody who represents the community's voice. Um, they are scrupulous in reviewing these studies um, and to make sure that it's safe and it's fair. There's a good system to do this, and every time that any paperwork is given to a patient or and their family on an approved study, it has a stamp of the date that the, institu- the proper institutional review board has approved it because it's so important that this is openly done and openly checked, and there's nothing sort of private. There are no special deals, no one slipping in a patient into a study that they may not qualify for. Everything is totally open. There are also um, lists online um, and a number to call, and I think you'll hear more about that from our next speaker, where you can find out uh, what uh, studies are open in your area for the type of cancer you have. This is often terribly complicated, and it's best to work with the treatment team to be able to help you. There's a lot of jargon. There's a lot. Of, there are a lot of specifics, but none of this is private information. This is all open, public information designed so that everybody who needs to be in a trial can get on one, and everybody who's running trials can get enough people on them to, to make the study effective. Um, the, um, the idea is that um, we, we attract an extremely wide variety of people to clinical trials. For years uh, we have found that clinical trials do not often represent the face of the United States or the face of the world. Um, It is important for, especially in certain cancers that appear both in men and women, let's say, or both older and younger people, um, that we have a variety of people of different races, um, of different ethnic backgrounds, because we do know that certain drugs or certain treatments are accepted by the body differently for people in certain groups. And we want to make sure that for a type of cancer that is... um, across the board between the genders or ages um, that the people are well represented on all of these trials. It's a hard sell sometimes, and it's hard to sometimes find a place, but it's the system of being able to match the right patient with the right trial is getting better and better. Um, Part of um, the um, dilemma here is that there were some terrible indiscretions, misuses of the role of research and clinical trials. There's one particular one that was run out of Tuskegee, which is rather, um, you know, rather well famous and talked about in research circles. It was a trial uh, treating syphilis that was conducted between 1932 and 1972. And the amount of informed consent was probably not good probably really bad. And people really uh, refer to this all the time, and we have um, done our best to make sure that, that that people who are on trials know that they're on trials, they understand what the risks and benefits are, and they're willing participants. Um, one of the questions that always comes up is, well, what happens if um, the the drug or device really isn't safe, um, and people are hoping that 500 patients will be able to be accrued to the trial. Aren't there any measures to avoid that from happening? And, yes, there are. Um, trials that go through this process have something called a data safety monitoring board. You know, everything in medicine has, a, um, has an acronym, a set of abbreviations, and we lovingly sometimes refer to this as the DS. Um, B, and data safety monitoring boards are made up of colleagues who are totally not involved with the trial. They can look at through the investigator and through approved approved ways, not getting a colleague who's walking down the hall and say, come in here, I have something to show you. (laughs) Data safety monitoring boards are a standard and official part of this process. They are not, associated, the people who work on those committees are not associated with the trial. They look at the trial, they look at the, any any signs of effectiveness and especially signs of any sorts of unusual or unexpected side effects. And the Data Safety Monitoring Board has a responsibility to um, to be uh, open with the um, sponsor of the trial, not the investigator. If there are so such great results that they feel that it shouldn't be held back from um, the general treatment because this is so promising with few side effects, or there are unusual, unexpected side effects, which makes it unfair or even just dangerous that people stay on the trial. And the sponsor has an obligation to negotiate and listen to the Data Safety Monitoring Board to make sure that the trial is stopped, either because it's so good that that can go into standard standard of care, or it's not good to proceed, and sometimes the, the regulation, the, the, the um the way the trial is being uh, run has to be changed in order to continue. But I think people can be really um, secure that somebody is watching out for them when they're on a trial. Uh, it's not just well we'll take this to the end and see what's what. Not like that at all. Um, the issue of informed consent is paramount um, in, the inform- in the in the in um, the process here, and informed consent really has um, uh, taken to a, a whole new level since the Tuskegee issue and especially since the um, privacy and confidentiality HIPAA laws are uh, in place. There are a lot of forms to sign, but the form is not the point of the story. The main idea of the story is that in informed consent, you ha- a patient and their family has the chance to ask all their questions to somebody who's knowledgeable about the tribe and uh, tri- trial and receive answers. And we'll discuss a little more about this throughout the call, but the good informed consent is not about the signature. It's about the discussion, the information, and the questions and answers. The other thing that um, has come up recently is about the actual informed consent um sometimes patients get actually get the results of the trial sometimes they don't and they have to be wait to, to see them published in a medical uh, journal if it's accept if the trial is, uh, description is accepted for publication um sometimes there are limitations on how long um information can be used, either information or genetic information um and there are specific Sort of super rules about sharing of genetic information which may affect people's families. So um, I, I think that time does not really allow going into all of the details of those rules, but the important thing is that they're there. They're there to protect patients and families, and they're there to guide the research teams um, to not um, use data or findings uh, that are not specific specifically discussed in advance and agreed to very openly. So I, I'm hoping that there are a lot of good questions about this. My time is up. I'm going to turn this back over to Dr. Messner.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really uh, excellent, and excellent overview and uh, setting the context for the clinical trial discussion of today's program. And our next speaker is Ms. Georgie Cusack, and Ms. Cusack is an oncology nurse. She's Director of Education and Patient Safety Office of the, Cancer Direct, of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And Ms. Kusak will be addressing what happens in a clinical trial, how and where clinical trials are conducted, how you may participate in clinical trials, benefits and risks of participation, and accessing resources for clinical trials could not have a better person to do this, actually. She works at the Clinical Trial Center, a major one in the country, so it's with great pleasure that I turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Ms. Cusack. Thank you, Dr.
3: Messner, for allowing me to participate in this discussion and to Dr. Fleshman for your expertise around clinical trials. It's my pleasure to speak about this topic to you because it is very near and dear to my heart. I've been a nurse in a clinical trial setting for about 33 years now. So what happens in a clinical trial? So when someone goes into a clinical trial, they'll be cared for in a hospital setting or a clinical setting and have a research team that may include doctors, nurses, social workers, dietitians, and other healthcare professionals who will provide the care for you, monitor your health, and then give you specific instructions about the study. Participating in a trial may mean that you might have more tests and doctor visits than you normally would have just because they have specific endpoints that they're looking for and they want to make sure that they're protecting your safety while they're doing the trial. Um, Different team members will also continue to stay in contact with you after the trial ends uh, to make the trial results as reliable as possible. It's important for them to follow, uh, for you to follow the research teams instructions and that means um, having all the doctor visits and tests taking the medicines on time and then completing any logs or answering any questionnaires that may be part of the study so where are clinical trials conducted early phase clinical trials as Dr. Flesher was mentioning the phase one phase two trials are usually done in uh, or may be done in large academic centers um, in the phase one studies, we conduct the studies on anywhere from 20 to 100 patients. For phase two studies, we do it on anywhere from about 100 to 300 patients. Three uh, phase three studies are usually done at more the academic centers out in the uh, kind of out in the real world in the community. They may also be done at doctors' offices or in the community, depending on who is participating in that study. Uh, Those trials actually can have up to thousands of patients on them. And so many times you will see several centers involved for one study, and these are called multi-center trials. Um, How are they conducted? The protocol itself is a step-by-step approach that's used to help to decide if the particular approach is going to be beneficial for the person who's receiving the agent or intervention again as Dr. Fleischman said we do um we actually do medication trials but we also do device trials on patients so it may mean coming in and having specific testing done where we are testing a specific type of device to see if it's going to work as effectively for that Um, there is fairly uh, strict oversight of the trials. Each protocol will outline the type of study, whether it's an interventional trial, a natural history trial, or a screening trial to see if you're eligible. Uh, They'll talk about the purposes of the study. They'll talk about the specific study intervention that's going to be done, Uh, whether it is an FDA-regulated study. um, The the types of studies that we do, we do FDA-regulated studies, but we also do... um, uh PI initiated studies, so physician, uh primary investigator initiated studies. So not all of the studies are um are um, are have oversight by the FDA in terms of that. We look at very specific eligibility criteria as Dr. Fleshman said and so you have to fit certain criteria to fit in a study and that's more to protect your safety. We want to make sure that people are eligible and that their, you know, their labs are within a certain parameter. You know, if somebody has um, elevated uh, liver enzymes to start with, you may not want to give them something that may potentially be toxic to the liver. So we look at those eligibility criteria just to make sure people are eligible for that. Uh, We will explain the length of the treatment and provide you with a contact person to get in touch with if you have any questions. So as I said, there's pretty strict oversight uh, from the IRB for safety and possibly also from a data safety monitoring board, as Dr. Fleischman was talking about. The principal investigators responsible for the oversight of the study, but they may delegate certain responsibilities to other members of the research team. And um, the thing for you to know is the team is working very collaboratively together just to make sure that there is patient safety adhere to throughout the trial. And then the IRB and DSMB are <clears throat> excuse me there also for that. When we look at the benefits and risks of participation, some of the benefits of participating in a in a cancer clinical trial is a lot of times the cancer care is provided by top physicians in the field of cancer research. And so, you know, they many of them have been working in research for many years and are looking at very specific Uh, endpoints there. We have a lot of targeted therapies now. It used to be that we were giving chemotherapy all the time. Now we're giving a lot of um, targeted therapies and we're giving a lot of therapies that either upregulate or downregulate your genes and things like that to actually make the um, treatments work more effectively for you. And so they're looking at that kind of across the board. So you do have access to new drugs and treatment methods Um, before they're widely available to others if you're in these studies. You will have close monitoring of your health and any side effects, and sometimes they um, also will ask you to take a more proactive role in your own health care to make sure that uh, you're getting the treatment um, that is working best for you. Some of the risks of participating, the clinical trial sometimes will require more time than a non-clinical trial treatment, such as, again, more visits to the clinical trial site, uh, maybe more treatments or hospital stays. There may be... Um, some side effects. So as Dr. Fleischman said, you know, when we are giving phase one studies, we're not sure what the maximum dose is that we can give to somebody. So when we started, we started out in cohorts of three, and then we increased based on how the previous patients have tolerated. That's all based on the animal studies. So we don't know what the actual dose is that's going to be the right dose. And so that's why we start the doses out smaller, and then increase the doses over time with that, and so what we see is is that you know sometimes um some patients tolerate the treatments better than other patients, and so you may see some side effects in there that you um you know may not have seen with some of the other treatments that you're getting and so we watch you very closely just to make sure that we're you know um giving the right amount to each patient um in the blinded study that Dr. Fleischman was talking about again, you may not be able to choose which treatment you get. And so sometimes they will have, um, you know, placebo versus um, placebo is, you know, you don't don't know you're getting something different than, you know, the, the actual drug itself. And so they might randomize you to one arm where you receive a placebo treatment and the other arm where you see the actual treatment itself. And so you may or may not know that. Some of the studies have done that over time. We don't see that as much with cancer patients, but we do get that. We'll also get what we call crossover studies, where they may randomize you to receive one, and then if that's not working, sometimes they will cross you over to the other um, to the other treatment and just see the differences in that. But all of that has to do with the research itself. But the important part of that is we always tell you about that, and your consent that you sign contains all of that information so that you're clear on exactly what the treatment's going to involve. Um, You know, you always run the risk that the treatment may or may not work for you. And so, um, you know, even if it benefits for other people, every person is different. We try to have – we're getting to the point where hopefully we can do more personalized medicine and treat each person differently based on kind of the um, genetics of their tumors, but um, we still have a little ways to go on that. And so you do have that option potentially. Um, your insurance company may not cover all the costs, and so we'll go over that in just a second when we talk about the cost involved. And as we said before, sometimes there's more frequent testing and more frequent doctor visits, so we can really watch you for safety um, and side effects for that. So how does somebody participate in a, a clinical trial? So. I would say first that you should discuss with your physician, your individual physician, to seek their opinion and experience with clinical trials. They may know of specific clinical trials that you may be eligible for, um, just from the community of physicians and from talking to researchers around the country. There's also a variety of resources available to you if you want to explore for yourself. And you can access through either a clinical trials um, list or a clinical trials matching service. And, so the difference is a clinical trials list is is a list that will give you the names and descriptions of clinical trials that are out there. It will describe the actual study eligibility criteria and then provide you with a contact person to talk about what the particular trial. Um, the National Cancer Institute is an example of a clinical trials list. And so they provide you with a list of studies that are available in the U.S. and in Canada. And if you go on cancer.gov, which is the website for National Cancer Institute, again, you can type in a keyword, or, um, and if you type in the particular keyword, such as the disease or things like that, again, it'll give you the name of someone. Um, you get to either email or you can online chat them. Or if you want to talk to somebody in person, you can call the 1-800-FOR-CANCER number. And I'll just reassure you, Carolyn has a list of resources. Dr. Messner has a list of resources that she'll provide you at the end of this. So don't worry about writing everything down now. The National Institute of Health also has a... A website called clinicaltrials.gov. And this is a listing of all the studies that are available for all types of diseases. So it not only covers cancer, but it'll cover any other kind of disease that's out there that, that if the particular group listed the study under clinicaltrials.gov, it'll be listed there. And for that one, you can search by list, uh, excuse me, by disease. Or condition, You can also perform an advanced search if you want to look for a specific phase of a study or type of intervention. So, you know, you may want to look for just what are the phase three trials out there for your particular type of condition or maybe what are some of the phase one studies if you've gone through a lot of um, different treatments. And I, I will tell you, when we have patients sign up for phase one studies, usually you would have already had to have tried some, at least one type of treatment, sometimes more than one type, for your condition, because we want you to try standard care first to see if that's going to work before we um, would put you on. Before someone would put you on a clinical trial for that, we have a couple other websites. One is called CenterWatch, and that's CenterWatch.com, and it provides again a list of industry-sponsored and government-funded studies. Again, you can put in your medical condition. You can also, for that one, put in a geographic location, as you can for the clinical trials also, or if you've heard about a specific drug, you can put the particular drug in there also, and they can give you information about studies that are being done with that drug. And then private companies such as pharma may also have specific websites or toll-free numbers with a list of studies that they will offer for you. Um, And then the Clinical Trials Matching Service, um, you will provide information to them about the type of cancer the stage, any previous treatments, and it will automatically sift through the database to find those studies that you may be eligible for. Some of, the, um, some of the sites that offer that, there's one called ACT, which is about clinical trials, and then there's another one called Emerging Med, and again, those will be provided at the end of the talk. When you ask about for the matching services, sometimes they're... Um, for some of those services, there may potentially be a finder's fee. So whenever you talk to someone about those, just ask them, is there a finder's fee associated with that? And then you would have to decide whether you want to pay the finder's fee. Um, you also want to ask them if you have to, because sometimes they want you to register for the site. And what you need to ask about that is, is it confidential? So, you know, you may not want your information going out to everybody and and those things, and so you may just want to ask them that to make sure that it is confidential, um, where do they get their list of clinical trials from? Is there a ranking list of studies? Because sometimes they can give you a, a long list of studies and it's hard to differentiate with them. And then can you call an online uh, number or can you call them by phone? Um, what I would say, if you are going to go on one of these sites, either the matching sites or um, the other sites, always take those studies back to your physician and talk over it with your physician because they can help you kind of go through and help decipher some of the information and uh, to help you make a better decision about a clinical trial. Um, and then accessing resources for clinical trials. Again, payment for clinical trials. When we talk about paying for clinical trials, there's patient care costs and there's research costs. Your patient care costs are things like doc- doctor's visits and hospital stays, scan- standard cancer treatments, um, different lab tests that need to be done, and then the research costs are actually really the study drug, any lab tests that are purely performed for research purposes, and then any additional x-rays or imaging tests that are performed solely for the trial. Usually, the patient care costs may potentially be covered by your insurance company, and I would call your insurance company to see what they will cover for that. Sometimes they don't cover the research costs. A lot of times if you have a study that's covered by a, um, either a pharmaceutical company or even some of the principal investigator initiated studies, those costs might be covered by the individual um, company or institution. And so you would just want to check into that before you decide to um, participate in the trial. So again, managing costs, you can talk to the person conducting the trial. Um, As I said, the sponsor may potentially pay for it. I would also access access social workers or if you have a case manager that's associated with your insurance company, sometimes they can help you to work through that. Um, The billing office or uh, different patient advocacy groups and things like that will help you to be able to know whether there are co-pays or deductibles that you need to pay. Um, one of the other things I would tell you is to really keep paperwork in one location because it can get overwhelming when you're trying to figure out how to pay costs and you so you want to just make sure you have everything in one place. And then the other thing in terms of the drugs is asking about getting generic brand, brands versus brand name drugs because sometimes the generic drugs are um may end up being cheaper. And there are a lot of companies that um, prefer to use the generic brand in the clinical trials piece at this point anyway. In terms of if there are any legal aspects you want to talk about with accessing um, clinical trials, the American Cancer Society has a a, um, a cancer legal resource center. And so, again, if you're um, having to take time off of work or, um, you know, if you want to stay in, employed during your work, what are some of the legalities associated with that, and just just to keep yourself informed so that you're aware. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about is questions to ask your doctor. And so, again, the what we recommend is that you always take a notebook or a journal so that you can – um, write down things as they 're talking, you want to try to prepare in advance and there if you go on the American Cancer Society website or the n c i website there 's a list of or your specific disease that you have sometimes they will also have websites there 's usually a list of questions that you can ask when you go on those um go on those sites and so I would take That list with you. You want to take somebody with you, um, if at all possible, to kind of write down notes and things like that. Sometimes when you're discussing treatment options and things like that, it can all sound like a big jumble um, as you're doing it. So you want to take somebody with you to help you kind of decipher the information afterwards. Sometimes um, physicians will also let you tape record the meetings, and so you can ask if um, you know if they're comfortable with that. A lot of physicians will be comfortable with that, so that then you can kind of review the tape when you go back home and uh, make some sense out of things. Uh, key questions again: uh, What is being done? What will the study include? Will they work with your home physician? And what are the communication patterns that they um, that they use with your home team? Who to who do you contact with questions? That should always be. On your um, consent document, or you know, they should always provide you with that information. They should also provide you with any other options or alternatives that are available to you, other than just the clinical trial that they're doing. Um, you want to know how much experience they have with the particular treatment, how many patients have been treated so far, um, are there any preliminary results? Sometimes it's hard to give results if you're if they haven't treated a lot of patients, but you can. You know, you can kind of ask about previous experience and stuff. But remember with that, again, every patient is different in how they respond to things. And so you just want to try to remember that. Um, what tests and treatments will, you'll be having done and how well you know whether it's working. Um, reasons for removal for trial. And then um, the option of can you stop voluntarily you can always anytime you get into a clinical trial you can always have that option of stopping voluntarily but you really want to weigh the pros and the cons of that and talk about talk to your team about it and also talk to your um your home team about it also because once you start a clinical trial you know you just want to see where you're at, you know, within the clinical trial and then make a definitive decision with that. But you always have that option. So I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Mesner now, and
1: I'm happy to entertain any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kusek. That was really wonderful. Just an amazing overview of really what happens in a clinical trial and all the details. So thank you and all the resources. And I should tell you all that you will be getting all those resources, as Ms. Kusek said, um, when you get your evaluation form from Cancer Care. We'll be sending you all the, anything that was mentioned during any of, any of the speakers mentioned as a resource, and then also additional resources as well. But she really mentioned some really wonderful highlights, so we'll highlight those as well. Um, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we are going to take your questions, so we'll start to prepare your questions. Um, and um, our uh, lead operator, Sonia, will explain to you how to cure up her questions in just a minute. So cancer care is a national organization, and we are staffed primarily by oncology social workers licensed oncology social workers who provide uh, support services uh, to all of you. And those services include both practical and financial assistance, and that's the financial assistance is restricted to the United States, Um, practical assistance and all the counseling services, online support groups, telephone support groups, those are available to anyone throughout the, the United States as well. Um, and also uh, for those of you in other countries, you can um, email Cancer Care, um, and we will, our uh, social workers will then follow up with you. Um, because we have an 800 number, one eight hundred eight one three four six seven three, and a website www.cancercare.org. And you can decide how you wish to communicate with us. But you can either post a question on our website, um, or you can actually um, call us at the 800 number if you're within the 800 area, North American area um also a given all that is uh happening right now in the world in terms of uh, covid-19 um we realize that in addition to coping with your cancer you're coping with lots of other issues particularly issues around social distancing the isolation that it may cause or vulnerability that you may be feeling and our staff are well equipped to help you to talk about that um and to try to find ways um creative ways to cope with it um And so that's really important as well, which is um, supportive ways to help you deal with it as well. And um, in addition to these programs, um, we also do have publications that you can access as well. And we are doing a program on uh, COVID-19 on March 30th. Um, from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and you'll be getting information about that as well, so an update, um, and the updates, of course, are occurring every day, so what we say today, it may be different on March 30th, so you'll be hearing more about that then as well. And now we do have time for questions, so I'm going to ask Sonia to tell all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, so I'm going to ask Sonia to bring our speakers on board, and, um, and we'll start with
0: our questions, yes. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Amelia S. Your line is now open.
1: Hi, it's Anil S. If you decide, very good speakers, if you decide to exit from a trial study, what are your obligations, and will you still be able to get cancer treatment back to the standard treatment? And does Medicare cover the cost of clinical trials? Well, cool, Thank you, Anil, for those questions. Good to hear your voice. Um, and actually, um, uh, do you want to start with that, Ms. Cusack, just in terms of the um, exiting the clinical trial, what happens? Sure.
3: Yeah. So there are, you know, there's a variety of, usually in the trial itself it will talk about people, you know, the reasons for discontinuing a clinical trial. Many times people will discontinue a clinical trial. Maybe they can't tolerate the side effects of the clinical trial, or maybe they have problems with the, um, they don't necessarily maybe think that the clinical trial is working themselves. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why um, the therapy may not be effective um, you know, there's there's other reasons also in, in terms of that. And so you absolutely at any time can um can stop a clinical trial. It's a again, it's a thoughtful decision that you make with your investigator and usually with your home team also, primary physician. You should be able to go back and get any type of standard care at that time that would be available for that trial. And, again, that's a discussion that you would have with your home physician. Sometimes you may be eligible for another type of clinical trial. If the clinical trial is not working, there may be another option available either there or maybe somewhere else. And so nobody should be holding it against you, though, in terms of if you want to come off – a clinical trial for a particular reason what i will tell you is and i work with have worked with transplant patients for many many years and when we do bone marrow transplant it's very difficult to maybe come off of a transplant if you they've collected your cells given you all the chemotherapy and not given you back your cells so that's why i talk about having a thoughtful discussion to make sure that it's safe for you to be able to come off the clinical trial also but you always have the option of of doing that and then medicare um I think it actually depends. I, I'm probably not the best person to to talk about that overall. Carolyn, you guys might have some social work services more that can talk about that. But, um, you know, they may pay for some testing and not pay for other. As I said, with the research costs, sometimes um, even regular insurance companies may not pay for specific tests and things like that. And so that's why it's good to get all that checked out first. Um, and you can always work any time you go on a clinical trial, there should be a social worker at the facility that you're working with, or at least someone at the facility that can go over the billing and go over what's covered and not covered, and those kinds of things.
1: That's an excellent, excellent points. And actually, it is quite true that um, you would. Um, want to see someone about the cost before you even enter into a clinical trial, so you know what you're getting in for in terms of that specific question about what exactly is going to be covered and not covered. And Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add anything as well?
2: Yeah. Uh, apart from the, um, the administrative aspects that we spoke about, um, it's important to remember that it's really hard to stop a chemotherapy regimen or radiation or sometimes using a device in midstream and that mm-hmm. this is a one-on-one discussion with you and your treatment team because in addition to um, the ma- major, major thing is to make sure that you're safe, that discontinuing uh, at any point isn't more hazardous than staying on for a while. These are, are very specific individualized discussions. Um, make sure to have them. Um, it, it's from an ethical, legal point of view, it's always possible to pull out from a practical point of view. Apart from transplant patients, sometimes you have to transition over a while for medications, taper things, add new medicines uh, off the trial, and that's a discussion with your team.
1: It might be a good question to actually have at the beginning, I guess, of the of the trial. What if I want to get off of the trial? What what am I? What can I do? So you know that right up front. So for those of you who are thinking about chemical trials, and we may have discussed this already, you may say to them, what if during the trial I decide to go off the trial? What are my risks? So you know up front um, you know, what can be worked out and has that happened with other people and how they handled it. So you kind of get some background on that. Because I think our other speakers addressed this already anyway, but to some extent that's important. And I think we have another question in queue.
0: Thank you. And our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Uh, yes, thank you so much, Carolyn. This is an excellent, excellent seminar. Uh, my questions are, I am you new know, a breast cancer survivor, a social worker, a nurse, but my questions have to do with the devices that Dr. Leisha was talking about. I was wondering about, like, the new devices, like the Scrambler device, all these devices, cold laser, hot lasers, all of them have been, F- if they're FDA approved, and after they had the clinical trials, why don't insurances cover since they're FDA approved now? After it's all done, like regular insurance, of course, and Medicare? And also, what about if a person has lymphedema? How are they able to give the medications in the one arm? Or if the person has it in both arms, how can they give medications, switch them? And what about is the person's weight considered at all for the medications, if they're less weight or heavier? Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Stephanie. So I guess I'm going to ask... The lymphedema is a good question because it comes up a lot um, in general here, in, in general. Um, so how is that dealt with in terms of um, chemotherapy? I'll,
2: I'm, I'll start. I'm, I'm
1: Dr. Fleischman, do you want to start I'll, with that?
2: A lot of good questions. As far as the weight of a person, um, the way chemotherapy is uh, measured is by uh, how many milligrams of the medicine itself by square meter of skin, because skin is the largest organ in your body. And there are very clear tables that help you translate weight into milligrams per square meters or meters squared, as we say in the metric system. So weight, at the size of a person is considered, but it's not the weight, it's the actual size. It's, it's. I, I, I know it's not the best analogy, but it's like when you go to um, send a package at United Parcel Service. They weigh it, but they also measure how long, wide, and deep it is because that affects the price. Uh, it's the same concept, but a you know different system, but it's the same sort of thing. Um, um, uh, as far as um, – now I'm blanking out on the original questions. I went to the last one first. <laughs> can okay. Can you continue, Ms. Cusack?
1: And, uh, Ms. Kusick, do you want to add anything? Well, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to come back to the original question, too. The, uh, I guess it's going to be the think with de- they- So the lymphedema, like how do you actually... Yeah, so the lymphedema...
3: Yeah. So the lymphedema. A lot of times, um, first off, we do the sentinel for breast cancer. We do the sentinel node biopsy a lot now, so we have a lot less lymphedema than we used to have um, in terms of stuff. But many times they will put either instead of giving it peripherally. A lot of times they'll put a port in these days for treatment, or you know, some kind of central line that they can give the chemotherapy through. Um, Depending on the extent of lymphedema, again if there's a lot of lymphedema, you really shouldn't be drawing bloods from that arm. You also shouldn't be doing blood pressures from that arm. Um, and, you know, if you do have an extensive amount in both arms, they would probably, and Dr. Fleshman, you can give your advice on this, but they would probably put a central line in you to more of a port or something like that to actually give the treatments at that point. It does become a little more difficult, but that's why it's so nice now that we do have the sentinel nodes um that we can do so you're taking out a lot less lymph node if that sentinel lymph node is negative then there's a you take out a lot of nodes than you normally would and so we don't see as much lymphedema with that
2: right exactly i I agree with that now you gave me a minute to think about the first question which is why it takes (laughs) so long to get things approved by insurance companies Uh, Mm -hmm. this is uh, a, a again one of those really complicated things the Probably the United States has amongst the longest interval of time between um, the collecting the knowledge in a, in a proper way that a device or a treatment is good and the time it gets approved and the time it gets approved by insurance companies. Um, many other countries do this a lot faster. Um, some people say, and there are probably good arguments on both sides, that taking time can be helpful um, because um, you really get to look at the data and the experience and make a good decision. Um, insurance companies um, then will only uh, approve things after they're approved by the FDA, but that they, since the insurance companies are private companies by and large, those happen internally in the insurance companies, and they each have their own policies. So we could argue if this is good or bad, um, it, there's a lot more scrutiny in the United States, but it takes a lot longer to get things done.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And um, so we have um, some other questions from our online participants. Um, and uh, this question will be um, for, um, for Ms. Cusack. Um, Are clinical trials available for all types of cancers? <clears throat> As far as I know, I mean I don't know
3: of any I mean I would check on the I would check on the cancer website and the um and the clinical trials website. I think for most cancers they are at this point, unless it's a very, very rare cancer where they haven't done any treatment modalities, but I can't think of I mean I've been I've been doing this for like thirty five years and most cancers I don't know, Dr. Fleshman, do you know of any that aren't covered?
2: I, I that are not over the years I can't think of uh, anything that I've never seen a clinical trial for, but I can't say with certainty that all the time there are clinical trials open for every possible cancer type at all the different stages, and, and people arrive at cancer with various other illnesses that either qualify or disqualify them for trials. So I, I think it's really hard to say all the time, all cancers, all stages, all other illnesses, but over my career, I've seen many, many things uh, be activated and then stopped after the accrual is complete. So, really, look—these lists change. I, I believe daily. Mm-hmm. So,
1: I guess uh, cancer.gov is uh, www.cancer.gov is the best place to go, or um, clinicaltrials.gov. Because they yeah, I mean, immune. cancer.
3: If you go on, if you go on cancer.gov, yeah, they, I mean, they have A to Z all the different types of cancers, and so they would let you know if there's any, any particular ones. But I'd go on any one of those websites that we talked about, uh, cancer.gov, clinicaltrials.gov, you know, some of the pharma companies that may be doing specific things, and then CenterWatch. All those would be the ones to kind of go for to look for the specific
1: type of cancer you're looking for. So we will give you all that information. Um, as an in addition to our speaking it, you'll get that also. Um, so in case you're trying to write this down quickly or weren't familiar with them, you'll be getting that information um, shortly, actually. Um, and when you get a follow-up evaluation, which doesn't just isn't just an evaluation, it also includes lots of resources for you. So it's, it serves a double purpose for you all. Um, so another question from one of our online participants. Um, So this one um, for Dr. Fleischman. My oncologist said I'm ineligible for a clinical trial. Are there other options available to me? You could just comment on that in a general way. um, Good question.
2: (laughs) Good good question. Um, Sometimes in a situation like that, the best thing is to get a second opinion second opinions are best done outside of the uh, facility where you're being treated. Uh, Maybe in the same city, there may be an expert in another city which brings up lots of issues about expenses and travel and all that, but a second opinion would really be warranted. If um, you you, uh, have insurance and that insurance limits you to a certain health system or a certain hospital, Call the 800 number on the back. Speak with somebody there. It is pretty much regular. I can't say it's 100%, but very regular. That insurance companies will allow a second opinion um, at another center which may be out of their network because it's the right thing to do. Um, years ago, the, this wasn't so easy to accomplish. And the last few years, I've, I've never heard of um, a patient uh, who has not been offered, not been authorized to have a second opinion. Though it often takes a huge amount of time and effort, both on the part of the patient and the family and the treating team, because lots of information has to go in and then it goes for approval. But that—that's probably the best thing to do.
1: And. Um... Do you want to add anything to that, um, Ms. Kusak? The only thing
3: I would say is, and again, I I think it's variable depending on the patient, but some of it depends on where you are in your disease process. And so um, a second opinion is a great idea with that. Um, You know, I would ask the reason why they don't think you're eligible for the clinical trial also. So I used the example earlier of increased liver enzymes. And so if your liver enzymes are above a certain amount or if you've had a disease where you may have had um, metastases, untreated metastases to the brain or something like that, sometimes that will, that specifically would make you ineligible for a trial, for a particular trial. The other, you know, the other thing is, you know, depending on how many treatments you've had and, what those treatments were sometimes for a period of time that may make you eligible because we do like that washout period sometimes. So I would ask the, I would ask your physician the specific reason why they don't think you're eligible for the clinical trial. And then the second opinion I think is a great idea also so that you can be assured that that, you know, of, um, you know, that that is the case with your particular instance with that.
1: Thank you. And, um, so another question, um, and this one um, uh, for Ms. Cossack, I'm currently on a clinical trial. The treatment is working for me. Can I keep getting it even when the trial, when the clinical trial ends?
3: That actually depends. It depends on where you are in the clinical trial. Um, they may have a limited amount of time that they are treating people on a particular trial. Sometimes they can put in for an extension, um, Of the clinical trial, Um, you know, they may have a cohort of patients, a a certain amount of patients that are responding very well to it. And so then they can put forth to the IRB and to the sponsor of the study to say, you know, we have a certain percentage of patients that are working on this trial. We would like to extend, do an extension arm study. And then they can potentially do that. So that's something that you would go back and talk to your treatment team about and just ask them if there is a feasibility of doing that, um doing that downline. And congrats that you're doing really well with that treatment so far. That's
1: exciting. Excellent. And Dr. Fleischman do you want anything? Or?
2: No, I think that that's the right answer.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Great team. Thank you both. <laughs> Amazing. Um so this may be our last oh well, um yeah this is probably our last question. Um um uh, let's see um Another online question. Um, it's a late-breaking question. So. so this is an interesting question. I am considering joining a clinical trial for, for Ms. Cusack. Where can I find patients who have been on a clinical trial? Is there such a is there anything like that that exists? So there's there's
3: several options with that. So you can check with your team that you're um, – You know, that they might, if you've talked to a team already about that, they may have patients that are willing to talk to other patients just about their experiences about clinical trials in general. You can do that. Sometimes you can go on to support groups, um, and you may have a support group um, either affiliated with your organization or a support group affiliated with um, cancer care or something like that, where they may have patients that have been on clinical trials and they can provide you also with information from that. And so there's, you know, there's different resources that you can um that you can utilize for that. Uh again, sometimes um yeah, I'd stop there and then Carolyn, I don't know if you have other okay. additional
1: resources that you guys provide yep. on that. It sounds good to me actually. Um I think it is true that you might want to speak with um you know with uh you can call other organizations. Um many of them um like cancer care, you could be in a, an online group or a telephone support group, and people are, are in trials and so can hear that experience. Uh, Stu, do you want to add anything? Can you think of anything? Sure. Um, uh,
2: exactly what, what you both just said <clears throat> that um, there are advocacy groups that are either national or international for major cancers. Um, and they often have really people who are really uh, very fluent in all of these details, and they often have people who will volunteer to speak with new patients. The term that's been used, and we can decide if this is a good term or a bad term, is veteran patients. Um, and they will set up a phone call uh, between a a prospective patient and a veteran patient or one of the people that uh, they deal with who's been on the trial to be able to ask the personal questions that the team can sometimes answer and sometimes not.
1: That's a very good point. Uh, The National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship would be a a, a really wonderful advocacy organization to contact, and the American Cancer Society as well. I have to say this has been an amazing call at this time, in our history of the world to some extent um, that, we're, um, that you're all on this call and that um, we're hopefully you've learned some things on the call. I want to thank our speakers. It's been really, really phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for both asking great telephone and online questions. I know there are many more questions. So as we conclude, I want to just wrap this up by giving you resources to get those questions answered. We definitely want you to take anything you learned today back to your healthcare team. Even if you asked a question or didn't ask a question, um, still take that information back to your healthcare team. They know you the best, and your team consists of so many different uh, disciplines: oncologists, um, uh, you know, uh, radiation oncologists, um, uh, oncology nurses, oncology social workers, patient navigators. Just a a really um, financial. Assistant people. there's so many different people who are part of that team. And so go back to that team and really, um, and, and talk to them about any questions or information that you may have learned that you feel um, wanna continue that dialogue with them. But we also know that you also like to go to credible resources to get your information. And so we have given you the information about the, um, the, the National Cancer Institute, their um, website, www.cancer.gov. Um or their eight hundred number, one 81 hundred eighty one I'm sorry, one eight hundred. Actually truth, you'll have to have it with that one. <laughs> um it's um they they have a one eight hundred number as well, so that you'll be able to access that number as well. Um and um and it's one eight hundred for cancer. Um, And actually, so there's a lot of different resources you can get. The American Cancer Society is also a terrific resource to get information as well. They are open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And that's a tremendous resource because a lot of times you have questions in the middle of the night. Not that you shouldn't call your healthcare team, but they're a great resource as well. And... um, so also, we don't want any of you to feel alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a large community of organizations and support. In addition to cancer care, there's a lot of organizations out there to help you. And we want you to be sure to actually take advantage of those resources. That's really important for you. Um, particularly at this time, when we talk about social distancing, we want you to actually take advantage of using the phone or email or anything you can do to connect with other people um, in, in ways that you don't quite that you feel connected. That's really important. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. We have many more programs coming up. You'll get information about those. I want to thank you for being on the call today, and I wish you all a very fine day. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.